So let's open our Bibles uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. I'll be honest with you, this is, um, you know, chapter 13 really covers seven parables, and what seems like it should be very straightforward, and, and perhaps it is, and I'm hoping today that I can... Share it in that vein, and uh, hopefully it'll be clear to you, and I won't muddy the waters. Um, But it gets interesting, because as we get into the passage that we're going to be looking at, verses 10 through the end of the chapter, Lord willing, and we're going to take communion this morning as well, when we get into uh, areas like uh, chapter 11, where Jesus talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, uh, you have to define, what what is that? Um, The kingdom of heaven. We know that the Jews, when they think of the kingdom, they're thinking of the millennial reign of Christ. And and they believed in their time that when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, that he was going to usher in the kingdom. And the Old Testament is replete with uh, passages speaking of those times, of the millennial age where the Messiah would be ruling and reigning on heaven. And every Jew knew that. All the Jewish people knew that. But even Jesus' disciples early on, they didn't quite get that. They they were still thinking that Jesus was going to usher in this kingdom, and it would be fairly soon. The prophets or John the Baptist, the disciples, they had no idea what was going to happen and what did happen. What was going to happen is that the, the Israelites, the Jews, they were going to reject their Messiah. So instead of going into this period of the kingdom What had happened is that now there was, because they rejected the king, that kingdom would be postponed for a later time. We know that as the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But interjected between now and that beginning when Christ comes in his second coming, this period of time, the prophets were really kind of clueless about they intimated at it a little bit, but they, they didn't have a great understanding of what we call the church age. And so we have to define this morning, what is Jesus speaking of when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven? Now, I could be wrong on this. I've spent a lot of time reading, and you, you can read uh, five different people and get five, actually not five, but a few different answers. And so this is not a uh, slam dunk by any means, but I believe that it is not speaking of this time that is yet future to us called the kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. But I believe it is speaking, and I think, and hopefully I can show that to you, I believe that it's speaking of this time between the advents, meaning the time before, the time between when Christ came into the earth as the baby born, the miraculous virgin birth, from that moment until his second advent or his second coming, this period in between Jesus in this chapter speaks of it calling it the age he calls it the end of the age but what age is he speaking of i believe he's speaking about this age between his two advents and it also just by the way includes the church age so somewhere in this age from the moment he was born until the moment he comes back in his second coming to the earth physically this is an age And the next age is going to be the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, what the Jews knew to be the kingdom. But I believe these parables are speaking about the time that we're, between these two advents, 
And again, it includes the church age. And the reason I say it includes the church age, we know that the church age began on the day of Pentecost, remember? Fifty days after Jesus had, had, had ascended or had resurrected, fifty days later, the day of Pentecost came. And the church was born. And we know that the church is, has been going on since then until now and until the Lord returns for us and snatches us off the, off the earth. We know that as the rapture of the church. So the church age began on the day of Pentecost. It ends, the church age proper ends when the church is removed from the earth. It doesn't mean that people can't be saved in the tribulation. I believe they can, but it's going to be very difficult. So we're talking about this larger, broader spectrum of time. But it does include the church age that we live in now. Does everybody follow me? And I believe that that is what is spoken of here in these parables. And I can't tell you how much I have wrestled with this over the last two weeks. Because there's a lot out there uh, about this. And it's really, uh, I want to rightly divide the word of truth to you. And I think hopefully as we go through this, you'll see that this seems to be the case. And there's room for uh, different opinions. But either way, it fits us right now. And the exhortation for us is very applicable to us today in this church age, in this broader age between the two advents. So let's look at it. We looked at the first nine verses uh, last week. And so I'm just going to quickly read them, and then we're going to get into the passage we're looking at today. And uh, so it says, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. This was in Capernaum, we believe. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and he sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, uh, well, let me just stop there, a parable. We, we looked at a, what a parable is. It's really from two Greek words, para and balo. Para means alongside of. Remember the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Ghost? Para means alongside, and then balo means um, to throw, so to cast alongside or to, um, to throw alongside. That's the idea of comparing two different things, something that they knew very well uh, to something, to equate it to something spiritual that wasn't known. And that's what this is about. Comparing things that are known against things that are unknown. And in this chapter, we're going to see seven different parables. The, the sower, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and the dragnet. But Jesus spoke the parable of the sower to the multitude, remember, and the disciples privately. So when Jesus is speaking to them, he's, 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 he's speaking to the multitude, and there's going to be a group of those who believe in him, that are going to understand what he's going to say. And there's also going to be a group uh, in that multitude that are not believers, that don't understand. And Jesus, the master storyteller, is doing two things at once. He's encouraging those who do believe in him, and he's also um, concealing things that those who are dull to hear and don't want to hear, he's concealing. Now, why would he do that? Well, most of the time, Jesus is all about revealing everything. But as we will see in this chapter, that there was a time, because of Israel's rejection, that he wasn't going to put before them information that they weren't ready to hear. Have you ever had, uh, if you've had teenagers in your life, you you know that you can speak to them when when they're 13, and you can speak to them about things, and they don't really get it. They're like, I don't understand. But it takes them until they're about 21. And then they're like, you know, I 
realize how smart, mom and dad, how smart you were. They didn't get it. The time wasn't right. And the same thing is true here. Jesus knew there was a multitude there. His disciples would get it. Their hearts were um, faithful and believing in him. And there were others who didn't. And so Jesus wasn't going to throw that information, making them even more accountable, knowing their hearts were hardened. And the nation was right on the precipice of rejecting him wholesale. And so he was selective. And this was something different that he's never done before. At this moment in time, he spoke differently to them, and even his disciples picked up on it. So the parables, uh, they were, the parables were meant to illustrate, but they were also meant certainly to reveal and to conceal, as we will see today. And uh, so, verse 4, And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And we looked at this last week. And the birds came and devoured them. And some fell on stony places, these four different soils. Some fell on the stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others, and here is what the Lord is hoping for all of us today, is that our hearts would be prepared, ready to hear, willing to receive from him. Some fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some thirtyfold, or some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So going on now in verse 10, and Jesus is going to define and and illustrate this parable to his disciples alone. He gave these parables to the multitude, but you were going to see Jesus drawing his disciples apart and explaining these things to them because even they were a little bit confused and they wanted more clarification. And the Lord did that. He ministered to them. But the multitudes didn't seem to care. And it's, it's, it's much like people today. You know, there's people who really want to know Christ. And some people just like to come to church to, just to be here. Like it's like it's some kind of social club. Church is never supposed to be a social club. It, it, granted, we do. We are social people. And we should be. That, that's what fellowship is. We get together. We pray together. We get in the Word together. We, we pray for each other. We eat together. That's what we do very much here at Calorie Chapel. Calorie Chapel, we, we, we love to eat. And who doesn't love to eat, for heaven's sake? Bring on the sauce and the bread. And we got a lot of Italians in this room, and boy, they make sauce good. They make it for days. It just kind of ferments in their kitchen on the stove at a low heat. It's beautiful. But we are supposed to fellowship. But it's not just a social gathering. We're here to grow. We're here to learn. We're here to glorify the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's what we're, what we're supposed to do. It's what God wants us to do. And he goes on here and he says, And the disciples came to him and noticed, they noticed something was up. You, you've never spoken like this before, Jesus. What, tell us what's going on. So the disciples came to him, verse 10, Why do you speak to them in parables? Had Jesus spoken to them in parabolic form before? Yes, he did. He spoke to them in metaphors and other things. We just got through one of the first major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, and that was the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he was using these parable-like things, these metaphors to describe. And here and there, excuse me, he was really illustrating points using these things to help them understand. And they got it. But now, something different. 
something different, and they, their antennas were up. And we get the answer in the next verse. So Jesus answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. Now, to the casual observer, they may think that this is not fair, but doesn't it tell us in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, Verse 48, for, for to everyone to whom much is given, to him much will be required. And to him, um, and to whom much has been committed, to them they will ask the more. We are accountable for the things that we hear. And the disciples believed in Jesus. They would be given more light and understanding because they were believing. But the religious leaders and many in the multitude that were there that were unbelieving and they rejected Christ, they had been given much and they had nothing to show for it. So really this speaks of stewardship of the soul, doesn't it? Take, being careful of what I see and what I hear. The world is full of noise. The world is full of things, messages that are trying to come in and change you and manipulate you and, and conform you. But what are you being conformed to? Are you being conformed to the mainstream media? Are you being conformed to Fox News or CNN? It doesn't matter what it is. Is that what you're being conformed to? Or are you being conformed to the word of God? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Because that is what we need, folks. I need to be more like him. I want to be more like him. I've had enough time in this flesh. Can anybody say amen? amen. Yes. Yeah, you're saying, yeah, I'm glad. You, you, you really have had a lot of time in the flesh. And we're glad that you're, you know. No, we, it's true for all of us. We've had enough time doing that stupid stuff. It's time for us to grow. <laughs> to grow up and, and, to, and to enjoy our salvation. Yes, even in very dark times. Yes, even in very dark times, and we are in a very dark time. Yes, even now. But this speaks of stewardship of the soul. Are this, is the soil in our hearts, is it prepared like we looked at these four soils last week? Where is our heart? Well, what soil is the word of God getting into me? Is it falling by the wayside? Is it being choked out by weeds and the cares of this world? Does it only go that thin because, I, you know, I try Christianity, but it didn't work for me. You hear people say that? Well, you didn't try long enough. One-stop shopping with Christ. There's no 12 steps to wholeness. One step. One step, and it's toward him. Notice he says the mysteries in this verse, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And in the Bible, there are mysteries. In this chapter, um, we will see that he even says in verse 34 and 35, notice, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And here he's quoting from the Psalms, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And one of the greatest mysteries in the Bible is the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, 
Something concealed in the Old Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New Testament. And God revealed this, if you remember, to the Apostle Paul, this secret of the church age. In verse uh, 1 of Ephesians uh, 3, he said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which has given me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly already written, by which when you read you may understand understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed, as it, not, as it has now been, excuse me, my tongue is in a little tied up in a knot here, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I become a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. I love that. So mysteries were being revealed to Paul. The, the whole idea of the church, that the, the Old Testament, the prophets knew nothing or very little at all of the church period, the church age. But the prophets spoke plenty of the kingdom of heaven. For the Jew, the kingdom of heaven would be the time when Jesus would rule and reign on the earth, when their Messiah would. They wouldn't call him Jesus, they would call him the Messiah. Because even today, many Jews don't believe that Jesus came the first time. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And I love the Jewish people. They, They really are wonderful people, and I love them. And we ought to love them and support them and encourage them, right? To the Jew first and then the Gentile. Not to forget that. Can't forget that. We, we are grafted into the, to the vine. <laughs> and they were the first. But they, they were thinking of this time when their enemies would be vanquished and their Messiah would rule and reign on the earth. And you and I know this to be the millennial kingdom. They just thought of it as the kingdom. And they thought it was coming very soon. But the fact that the kingdom of heaven, the the millennium, would be postponed and that there would be another 2,000 plus years of the church age was not even in the mind of the Old Testament prophets completely. It was a a mystery. It was like like walking into a room full of smoke. They they had an idea of it, but not very clear. And so they're just kind of like, okay, Lord, I'm going to write down what you tell me, but I don't quite get it. I don't quite get it. And it certainly wasn't on the mind of John the Baptist. And even Jesus' disciples for a good chunk of time were clueless about this church age. Because the church hadn't been born yet. It wasn't until after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, and then 50 days later when Pentecost occurred that the church was born. And then his disciples remembered he spoke of these things. And God revealed to the Apostle Paul this mystery of the church. But they were very aware of the kingdom of heaven. The Jews, uh, again, thought the, the, that the Messiah would usher in, 
would, be, would happen soon. But we know that in chapter 12, they claim that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, rejecting him. We'll see the Jews in this chapter rejecting Jesus in his own hometown. And we'll also see later on in Matthew chapter 21, when he rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah, specifically to the day, 173,880 days, right on the nose. He comes riding in on the donkey, blowing everybody. Nobody knew it, but he held them accountable for it. And we'll look at that on Palm Sunday. Um, But now Jesus would reject them. He's going to reject the nation because they rejected him. In Matthew, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Do you understand that it's about the will? It's not about just stuffing our head full of knowledge. Knowledge is good. We have to get these things into our hearts and into our minds, but something has to happen. There's something, there's 18 inches between this and this. This place where the seat of my emotions, the seat of my will, the seat of my will has to be engaged. If I just have all the stuff up here, but it doesn't engage me, it's worth nothing. The gospel is meant to change us, folks. Everything we read in here is meant to change us. Otherwise, we might as well read a novel. But the word of God is living and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the bones and the marrow and the spirit and the soul. A discerner of the heart and the intentions of the heart. A discerner of those things deep inside of us. But the Old Testament prophets, they foretold of the kingdom of heaven, but we know that time as the millennial reign in the Old Testament. Now, uh, we're not going to go through all these verses. We don't have time, and I don't even know if I'll be able to get through all of this today. And that's okay. We got next week. No, the week following. Who knows? We'll see. But I don't don't want to rush through this, even though I am anxious, because I I want to get through this with you, because I don't want to lose this momentum. But in the Old Testament, they were very aware of the kingdom. And yes, there is a kingdom coming on this earth for a thousand years. It's coming. And the Jews knew it. They read about it for every time they went to synagogue. They were reading passages like Ezekiel 40 through 47 where it speaks of the blueprint of the millennial temple. There's never been a temple. If you read the the blueprint that's written there in those chapters, 40 through 47, it tells us exactly how big this thing was. And let me tell you, there's been no temple that has ever been built that this one describes, not even the one that is coming in the, in the tribulation period. It's nothing compared to this one that Ezekiel is talking about. That is the millennial temple, the kingdom temple that the Jews knew was coming that now is postponed until at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it speaks, those chapters speak of David being resurrected and ministering alongside the Lord in Jerusalem during the millennium. It speaks of 
the, the services, and even the sacrifices that are going to be done in memorial. Yes, even sacrifices. We know that there's, Jesus was crucified once. There's no more sacrifices that need to happen. Once on the cross he died. But in the millennium, you can read at the very end of chapter uh, 47, I think, of Ezekiel, and, and Zechariah 2, the last few verses of Zechariah's uh, prophecy, it talks about these offerings, these sacrifices that are going to happen at that time in memorial, not because they needed to happen, but because they're going to be in memorial. But in Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a couple of these really quick because this is speaking of that time that the Jews were thinking of when they thought of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom, they were thinking of this. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it came to pass in the latter days, so even the prophet knows that this is in the latter days, and you and I are living in the latter days, and even beyond us is the latter days. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Is there a house right now in Jerusalem? No, there's not. There's no temple in Jerusalem. It's still yet future, the, the, uh, the Antichrist temple that's going to be built during the seven-year tribulation period, right? There, so there's no temple there now, but there will be, but that one will be done away with, and then in the thousand-year reign, a new one will be built that Ezekiel talks about, and it's huge, huge. Everybody say that, huge, it's huge. Now it can, and it shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations, all nations, notice all nations, in the Greek all is a wonderful word. It means only a few. No, it means all, all nations, not just Jerusalem, all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's only going to occur in the millennial reign. It's only going to occur in this time that the Jews knew as the kingdom. For the sake of time, you can write those scriptures down and look at them, but we got to move on here. But there are many other passages, but these uh, passages that I read to you um, speak to the kingdom that the Jews were looking forward to. But again, now it has been postponed because of their unbelief. And now there's this church age. And the kingdom of heaven is spoken of eight times in this passage in this chapter, and that phrase, kingdom of heaven, like we see in these parables, clearly is speaking of a time. And, and I want you to notice this as we read it. This is really important, that this phrase, kingdom of heaven, like we see in these parables, clearly is speaking of a time when the redeemed, as well as those who think they are Christians, but are not, dwell together. Okay? And examples of this are the parable of the wheat and the tares, Lord willing, should we get to, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the dragnet. They all show clearly that this 
age or this time period that's being spoken of is a time where unbelievers or believers will be and also those who claim to be believers but are not. So again, this age that Jesus is speaking to, we already talked about that, between the two advents, his first, his birth, and then his second coming to the earth. His first advent, his birth, to his second coming physically to the earth. Jesus is talking about this age. And again, the church age is inside this larger, broader period of time. Now, the kingdom of heaven is either referring to this age that I just spoke to you about, or the kingdom age, which you and I know as the millennial reign of Christ. But I tend to believe, and there are people who believe that it is the millennium. I don't want to muddy the waters this morning. I want to tell you that I, I believe that this is speaking of this age that I was talking about that includes the church age. I believe that that is what it's speaking of. And, and also, one of the reasons I believe this is because there's going to be a judgment at the end of that age that Jesus is speaking these parables. We'll see that as we get to the end of this too. So verse 12, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even that he, what he has will be taken away from him. And so God rewards the true, uh, the, the true faith and obedience to him, but he does not reward unbelief and disobedience. So therefore, verse 13, Jesus said, I speak to them in parables because seeing, they see with their eyes, but they don't perceive, they don't see, and they're hearing, but they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed. Notice the act of the will here, and this is so important to understand. We can hear and we can see things, but if our hearts aren't willing to understand, it's going to, be, it's going to end up like, like, like dropping on rock. It's just not going to happen. And that was the heart attitude of many in this multitude. And he goes on, and he goes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And certainly God was all about wanting to heal them, but they would not. You know, it's a foolish thing to refuse God, to refuse his overtures of love and grace. It's really foolish. I want to receive, don't you? Everything that God has for me. I want to receive everything that he has for me. Even the correction I want to receive. I need to receive it because if I'm not corrected, I'm not going to grow. And Christian, just because God chastens you, be glad for that when you're going through difficulties and trials because he's trying you. He knows what's going on in your heart. And I don't even know what's going on in my heart most of the time, but he knows, and he knows how to get me from point A to point B. And usually it's a pretty messy process. Very rarely does he say, just go down to the light there and take a left and then take another right and uh, you'll be there. <laughs> Great, easy. You know, and you go on your merry way. No, it's very rarely like that. I find that often I'm stumbling and fumbling and I got a broken nose and a bloody lip and I'm, you know, getting tended to and I'm crying and I'm like, I can't see. And I, you know, and I, I just feel like I'm using the Braille method through life sometimes. Just looking around, just, you know, like this. 
But Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 6. And when Isaiah wrote this, he was writing it during the time of the kings before Israel and Judah went into captivity. And Isaiah was sent to warn Israel and Judah. But God told Isaiah, Isaiah, tell them these things, but they're not going to listen to you. Warn them about this impending judgment of Assyria coming to take the northern ten tribes captive. Warn them about Jerusalem going to be coming under siege by Babylon in 606 B.C. Remind them, warn them of what's coming. But by the way, they're not going to listen. They didn't listen to me. They're not going to listen to you. But now they're accountable. So why would God waste his breath telling, warning, because now they're accountable. No one will be able to stand before God and say, I never, you didn't tell me. You never told me the truth. You didn't tell me that I was supposed to be a certain way. And God's like, oh, no, I've told you plenty I've told you plenty, and when you read the word of God, folks, we make ourselves accountable. And actually, let me put it in the positive, because that sounds negative. And, and it can be negative, but positively, I love this, don't you? I love the word of God. It's shaping my character, shaping my heart, helping me to know how to live in this cruel, wicked world that we live in. I'm so thankful for it. Are you thankful for the word? I love this more than anything in the world. There is no possession on this earth. If somebody says, we're going to stick you out in the island in the middle of the Pacific, may it be so, Lord. With my wife and daughter, of course. And, but you can take one article, what, what, what would it be? Well, I'd be struggling with an air conditioner. But anyway, I'd say, you know what? Give me the word of God. Stick me out there on the island. Just give me a shade tree and plenty of lobster that I can harvest. A shade tree and some coconuts and my Bible. I'm an island boy. I grew up on an island, Pine Island. I grew up in the tropics. That'd be fine for me. But Jesus is speaking of this time in Isaiah when they were going through that. And so verse 16, but he says, But blessed are your eyes, disciples. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Unlike the multitude, many in the multitude, I should say, not all of them, for assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. So the disciples were seeing and hearing these things revealed to them that the prophets and even the angels were desiring to look into. It's a mystery to them, and Jesus is revealing these things to his disciples, and he's still revealing things to us. What does it tell us in 1 Peter? Peter says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have, been, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Oh my goodness, that's the biggest run-on sentence, but Paul is the king of run-on sentences. But it's all there. It was all, it's all there. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> Mysteries. And God is still speaking today. I remember back in the 
late um, Sir Robert Anderson, who was an intelligence officer for Scotland Yard, who lived in the mid-19th century and died in the very early 20th century, he discovered one of the most significant prophecies that we know in our time. As he was reading through Daniel chapter 9, 25 or 24 through 27, the Lord just, he, he had an idea and the Lord put something on his heart. And it talked about, you know, the, this time period, you know, of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And then there was this pause. And then there was another, seven, uh, another se- a week of years, another seven years. And Sir Robert Anderson decided to look into these things because it talks about when the decree goes forth until the coming of the Son of Man or, the, you know, the Mashiach Nagid, speaking of, good, you know, Palm Sunday, that from this decree, and he went back in history and found the dates of those things, from March 14, 445 B.C., all the way to April 6, 32 A.D., is a total of 173,880 days. The exact amount of time. The most amazing prophecy, and we've known him probably for a very long time, and the Lord just gave it to him. And the math works. It works. And the scripture bears it out. But he's revealing these mysteries. So finally, we get into verse 18. We may need to stop right after we finish this parable, because right now we're going to see the parable of the sower explained. And last week we got into this. So this will be a little bit of a recap. We'll see how how we go here. Therefore, hear the word of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Now look over in verse 4. So Jesus is speaking to these four different soils in order in which they occurred in verses four through you know four through nine. But notice he's speaking of this soil that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Do you see that? This is what Jesus is speaking about here. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So do you understand now, when the Bible speaks of birds, it's speaking of demonic activity. And there are many other passages in the Bible that speak of that, by the way. But verse 19 defines for us who the birds are who devoured the seed. And this is, again, spoken of in verse 4. But in the, in the Bible, the mentions of birds are often associated with uh, death or demonic activity. And think about it. Birds are um, birds of prey. They feed on death. They feed on carrion, decaying flesh alongside the road. And growing up in Florida, we saw this all the time. A possum or an armadillo would get hit by a car. And you always know when something was dead because you see a flock of vultures, turkey vultures, picking at it alongside the road. Aren't you glad we're going to have a little lunch afterwards after this? <laughs> Don't worry, it's not going to be carrion. It's going to be some good stuff. But demons do the same. 
They feed on death. They seek to kill and devour their prey, which is no surprise because what does Peter tell us in his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 8? Be sober and be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And you've known people like this. They hear it and maybe you are one of them. And maybe the Lord is um, he's continuing to do work in your heart. But there are those folks who hear the word and they're really excited. They get excited and immediately they, they just they shoot to the top. They're very vocal, very excited. The stony places. He hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word of God, immediately he stumbles. And this word is scandalon. It's that, it's that, it's that stick that holds up a box like a snare when you're trying to trap an animal. Or a bird, you know, you put food under the box, you tilt the box up, and you stick a, a piece of wood there to hold the thing with a string attached. That piece of wood is the scandalon. It becomes a snare. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles or scandalon. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and he becomes in, uh, unfruitful. So this idea of choke here literally means to strangle completely, to crowd it out, to throng it, to suffocate it. And oftentimes this describes many Christians in the world today and in America they get saved, but they're more concerned about their, 50 or their uh, 401k. I was going to say 501. We're a 501c3. They're more concerned about their 401k and uh, just a ball of knots trying to amass wealth, amass wealth, doing anything to do, and, and they're just... Mm. No joy, no peace, just constant frustrating, trying to amass a fortune. And they lose their peace. There's no peace, there's no joy. Sometimes they'll even do questionable things just to make the dollar so that they can have that money. But I don't believe a person like this is to be reckoned as unbelievers. This is the first time where it says, and they become unfruitful. Do you see that? Which means that there was a period of fruitfulness, which may means they were being fruitful, but the, the, the cares of the world strangled it out of them. And now they are more concerned about these other things. And that's the reason why I, um, I say that. And this is why we should always be on our guard against loving the things of this world and the love of money and possessions. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're inherently neutral, right? A spoon is neutral, but you can do a lot with a spoon. A spoon can be a weapon, a fork can be a weapon. A baseball bat can be a weapon. It's immaterial. In 1 Timothy 
You know, we're warned that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Notice, which drown out or crowd out or throng something. It suffocates men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root. The love of money. Notice money is not evil. It's the love of it. And what are you going to do with it when you have it? Are you generous or are you... Going to the track? Are you going to the the casino? Are you buying questionable things? Are you using it to buy pot and and skunk weed and and all this other stuff? What are you doing with your money? Are you using it to glorify the kingdom of God or are you using it to squander away on some stupid lust of yours? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. This is really what this person whose seed falls among thorns. But he, verse 23, who received the seed on the good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But again, what is the state of your heart today? We're going to take communion here in just a few moments. In fact, if we could have the worship team, go ahead and come on up. And, um, but as we consider this last soil, we're not going to finish this chapter like I thought, but we'll finish it two weeks from now. We'll recap this and finish it up. He who received the seed on the good ground is he who bears, who hears the word, excuse me, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So what is the state of your heart today? Now most of you, you're here because the soil has landed on good soil. But there may be some of you here that are, um, that are visiting, or maybe some are going to hear this later. Where, where is, which soil, what's the, what is, where's your heart? Is it, is it such that when the word of God comes that it falls on the wayside? Is it such that it falls on stony ground? Is it, is it going to fall among thorns or is it going to fall on this good soil? And I think it's possible, again, and, um, that I exhibited all three of these soils before the seed finally landed on good soil. Because weren't there times in your life when people shared with you? I had one young man, his name was David Rickards, and I'll never forget him, in Pine Island, Florida. And he was one of these young men, he was a Baptist, and he was on fire. He was a great young man. He was a good friend. He was a friend. He wasn't a good friend of mine, but I, 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 I saw him as a friend. I, I wasn't opposed to him. I didn't understand him. I thought he was a little nutty. Honestly, I thought he was a you know, Jesus freak, and he was. But guess what? I turned into a Jesus freak. And the day that I gave my heart to Christ, I remember calling him or I wrote him a letter, I forget, emailed him or something. I got in contact and I thanked him for the many years that he had been praying for my soul. The many times that he had told me the gospel and many times as he's sharing with me, the seeds are falling by the wayside. And he wouldn't stop. He was relentless. He just came after me every day. But he did it in a loving way. He wasn't annoying like some Christians can be. And believe it, we can be annoying. I don't know if you knew that. We can be annoying to people. Don't be annoying. Be loving. And be persistent, but be discerning and be kind. Love always wins. Always. 
It's not about us. It's not about trying to put a notch on our belt. I spoke to another one today. I yelled at him and he cursed me and left. (laughs) Got another little notch on my belt. No, who cares about all that stuff? Be kind and love, regardless of who they are, regardless of their persuasion, whatever sin issue they're involved in, love them, be kind. But tell them, yes, the truth. We have to do that. The worship team is going to worship. And what have you think about that? Lord, what's the preparation of my heart? Is the seed that I've been hearing? And, and, and it is up to you to some extent. I mean, God, God prepares your heart, but you also have to, your will has to be engaged. You follow me? Because if my will is not engaged, then the seed falls by the wayside. The seed goes on stony ground. The seed goes and is choked by thorns. Important to know, Lord, where is my heart? And you know what? I pray that each one of us today has a heart that is just tender. A tender heart that's willing to be loved and willing to love, willing to accept responsibility willing to accept even being wrong, willing to be counseled, even when, especially when I'm wrong, to be willing to be corrected. Is my heart such that I'm in that place, or am I just a proud, arrogant fool? And I've known some Christians who are just proud and arrogant. I don't want to be around them either. But I love being around people who say, you know what, I'm not all that. I'm being conformed. The Lord is working in me. And he's working in you too. And none of us are perfect. So just get it out of your head. None of us are perfect. So don't compare each other to one another. We're all a mess. We're all a hot mess. Let's be honest. Just be honest. Look at yourself in the mirror and go, I am a hot mess. Is that the right thing to say? Is that bad? I, I heard that and, I, and maybe it's, I don't know, if it's a little too colorful, forgive me, I... Things happen up here. Anyway, where is my heart? Where is it? Lord, would you soften it? There's a song we used to sing, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you this, because I know she but soften my heart with oil. Open my eyes to see. Fill me with understanding. Open my heart to receive. I want all that you have for me, Jesus. Soften my heart with oil. Soften my heart with oil. That when the seed, the word of God, takes, hits me, it's going to find its root. It's going to land on fertile soil. It's going to go down way down deep. And it's going to come up and it's going to reveal a bumper crop. Harvested, beautiful things. So much so that people are going to look at my life and say, you know, there's another Christian who's really nasty. He's got this thing. He walks around on Monroe Avenue. God hates you, you know, and, and you know stuff like that. And that, but you're not one of them. What's the matter with you? Why are you so loving? Why is it that when I'm getting on your case, why are you still loving me? I've given you every reason to hate me. And why are you still loving me, Christian? <laughs> why are you still praying for me? Why are you buying me donuts? You know I like you know, the Crellers, and you bring me one every Friday. Why do you do that? I've given you every reason to not want to be around me at all. 
I don't know what it is, but I want that. I want that. It's unlike, it's otherworldly. It's other-centered because it's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. That's why. Love changes people. It changes things. It changes me. It changes you. Let it happen, and let's love each other. Can we do that? Yes, love each other, but don't be afraid to tell the hard truths. There's the difference. A mature believer can love somebody and approach them and have to tell them really something really difficult that's going to wound them, but you can do it in such a way where they don't even know which way you hit them. You can approach them with, with sugar and honey and butter, and they're like, you just told me that I'm a sinner, but you did it in such a way where I'm not ready to punch you in the nose. How did you do that? How did you love me into making me realize, well, it's the Spirit of God. Is that the soil of my heart? Is that where I'm at? Is that where God wants us to be? You better believe it is. So we've got some thinking to do about our hearts. Lord, make my heart fertile. Make it ready for you. Don't let the word go in one ear and out the other. No, let it fall on the fertile soil and produce fruit. And see, that's, what we, that's why we take communion, because we're communing with the one who died for us so that we could have this. Remember, Jesus says, unless I go, I can't send the comforter to you, who is the Holy Ghost. I have to leave. I had to be crucified, Jesus said. This was part of God's plan. I knew that. I willingly submitted myself to this cross. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. Jesus did that. Willingly to the cross. Just like Isaac, as Abraham was about ready to thrust the knife in his chest, Jesus, too, laid down his life. And we take this because... Because of his death and because of his resurrection, we are now, if we put our faith in him, we can have the confidence, the assurance of not only this life, of being conformed to his image, but one day when either the rapture or when I come to natural death, I'm going to be in his presence forevermore, for eternity. Isn't that what you want to be? That's where I want to be, folks. And you want to be that way too. That's where you want to go. That's why we take this. Because when he ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit of God to us. And now the Spirit of God indwells us, and he is there, and he's not going anywhere. Read John chapter 10. We are secure in the beloved. Once you give your heart to him, there's nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath that can pluck you out of his hand. You are secure eternally in him because of his work, and that's why we take this. And so, Father, we just thank you for this uh, time. Pray that you just uh, prick our hearts, Lord, soften our hearts, and have your way with us, Lord, as we remember your death. In Jesus' name, and amen. And as they uh, share a song and, and worship, come on up and grab the elements, bring them back to your chair, and we'll take it together. You know, it's amazing. They had a different song planned, and... Uh, I didn't expect them to pull it off. Bravo. <laughs> that was sweet. <laughs> uh, Jesus, obviously, in the Last Supper with his disciples the night before he was wrongfully taken, and he 
celebrated the Passover one last time with his disciples. And remember, he did something different then that he'd never done before, that was never part of the Passover meal, and that he took the bread, and they just had this chabala bread or whatever, the, you know, the really naughty bread or something like that, and they would just tear off a chunk and pass it on. You know, that we had to do that. Just have a bunch of loaves of bread, just one big loaf, and just, you know, in the post-COVID era, could we get away with that? I'm only kidding. But they would take a piece, and they would, and, and Jesus said to them, and it's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And so as we take this bread, this unleavened wafer that we have in our hands, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we thank you for your broken body on the cross. Thank you that you took the punishment that we deserved. And, Lord, your blood was shed on the cross, securing us, Lord, for those who believe in you, securing us for an eternity with you because of what you have done. Holy God, on that cross at Calvary. And so, Lord, we take this bread in remembrance of you and thank you. Let's take. In the same manner, he goes on, he also took the cup after supper. And again, they just had the Holy Grail or whatever it was. It's buried in my backyard. No, they took the chalice and it was, had wine in it or grape juice and they would pass that around and they would all take a drink from it. And he says, this cup is the cup, is the, is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, notice, in remembrance of me. So as we take these things, we remember, how could we forget what Jesus has done? How could we forget it? But yet, busy lives, we can forget family. Have you ever done that? We can become so busy that we forget. And so that's why we take this the blood of the new covenant. Let's partake. And as you drink that, and as you take the bread and the cup, do you understand what's happening? You've, you're basically uh, testifying that what we just did, you believe in. You take that down in the innermost part of you. It's symbolic. This, what we've done is Symbolic. And when you drink the bread or eat the bread and drink the, of the cup and it goes down into the center of you, it's very picturesque, isn't it? Symbolic of what Christ has done and, and the, the presence of his Holy Spirit now. We have this relationship with him, this communion. And it's such a wonderful thing when the church gets together, when we break bread together, even just eating together and fellowshipping. And it's so wonderful. And so, Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we just thank you for this uh, time together, and um, Lord, refresh us today. I pray that even the things that we looked at today, Lord, we would uh, take note of them, we would consider them, and Lord, we pray that you would have your way in us, that you be glorified always, Lord. Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying for me and all of us here and the whole world for those who would believe in you. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.